What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Jim, you're on a roll right now, so what could a potential Pete Alonso extension look like? First off, I forgive you for doubting me last week. <laughs> me? Eamon on the McNeil <laughs> extension. Uh, it was Eamon McEnany that... Uh, now you're a typical player, just finding everyone I've been going around you, right? the whole office finding those doubters. You were one of them. But I will, I'm going to give this another shot because we tried this a couple weeks ago. We're going to dust it off. And just looking at the numbers a little bit more, I think that Pete... When you look at some of the numbers that are out there, and he's already in the books now this year for, what, $15 million, I think, on arbitration. So we're looking at next year and in his free agent year, free agent years. I think a number, like what I'm suggesting here, eight years at $240 million. It's up a little bit from what I suggested a couple weeks ago, about $30 million more. But it's north of Freddie Freeman, who right now is was signed as a free agent last year. Olsen signed just before him when they traded him to Atlanta. But here's the number I think is more relevant. Pujols went out as a free agent. This is 2012. He and Miggy Cabrera both had the record for 10 years, $240 million. That number, 240 for Pete, I think because of what we've seen with all these contracts is more relevant now than it ever has been. And I can't believe that if, if the Mets were to go to that number, 8 at 240, it would tie a record. It would put him 17th all-time in Major League Baseball for contracts, largest contracts. And that's kind of where I think Alonzo is. He's in the top 20 in the game. While he's under control before he becomes a free agent, I think that's a number that would be really hard to turn down. You know, I, I will say this about Alonzo extension, guys. It, it's been very hard to challenging to report on this because Billy Epler is a, like a locked vault when it comes to potential uh, in-house extension talks. I'm sure he learned that from being Mike Trout's GM for all those years. And, and Pete Alonzo's agent has politely declined to comment on anything regarding this. Uh, so there's not a ton of information out there, but I will say that I would be extremely surprised if anything happened anytime soon before the season, as in, like, there was maybe a hope among Mets fans that after McNeil got done uh, that, okay, good, on to Alonzo, and that the Mets and Alonzo were going were gonna to get something done also in this time frame before spring training or before the season. And it really just does not feel like the tea leaves are there uh, for that to happen. So uh, whether or not he hits that number, and I'm certainly never going to doubt Jim Duquette number again, I think that feels to me like an issue for a year from now or more. Uh, just not something that's following the McNeil news. It's another edition of the Talking Mets podcast here on this Sunday, February the 5th, 2023. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out all the time at thetalkingmetspodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media. And you can show up on podcasts, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silva at talkingmetspodcast.com. No G. Mike Silva at talkingmetspodcast.com. And you can check me out on Instagram, talkingmetsnog. And, of course, I want to welcome in the good folks from the Fan Sided Podcasting Network as well as RisingApple.com. Welcome to 
another edition of the Talking Mets podcast. And if there ever was a synopsis of February sports and February, like what February is all about, was it not like Friday and Saturday with the weather like negative? And I hope you're all safe. I hope that nothing bad happened and you're staying warm wherever you are. I know that in some parts of the country it got really bitterly dangerously cold. Not it was dangerous here too. I think Friday night into Saturday, uh, if I'm not mistaken, it was about uh, you know negative six, negative seven, maybe negative eleven out by me here on Eastern Long Island and. You know, I got some dogs. I'm worried about them. I'm like, let's go out. Let's go out. And, you know, it's amazing to me. Those who own dogs, like, they'll pick the worst times, like bad weather, stormy weather, negative temperatures, like take the time outside. It's inevitable. They always do it. And I'm like, guys, come on, because you're worried, you know, about them getting, you know, frostbite or something like that. And then I go outside because I had to take care of something. And stupid me forgets my jacket, and I'm out there playing around with some lawn furniture. I'm like, you might get no more talking mats. I might be like Frankie Carbone in Goodfellas at some point, but uh, away you go. But really, is it not a synopsis of February where the sports schedule, post-football, because the Super Bowl, I mean, the great Mike Francesa always said that the last real football Sunday is the championship Sunday because the Super Bowl's more of a national event, not the hardcore football fan. And then you have your first non-football Sunday. It's giving you a teaser into the non-football Sundays that are coming up. You know, you may be an NHL or an NBA fan. The all-star games for those sports, just they've never really ever, I think, at least in recent years, held any cachet. The weather's really bad. You still don't have a ton of sunlight. So the only promising thing that you have sports-wise after you thaw out from a couple of days like that is number one, this program, Talking Mets. That's, you know, a given, right? And number two, you're about 10 to 12 days away from pitchers and catchers and from spring training and from really the sense of spring. Longer days. Nothing is better, and I'll probably say this a thousand times before the uh, the season starts, is those first few March, April days after you change the clock where you're starting to get longer days and you could sense the warmer weather and baseball and the things that make uh, you know everything fun, at least around here, at least here in New York, at least on this show. Um, funny enough, you know, before I get to today's program, which I have a lot to talk about, you know, Pete Alonzo talk all week. We kind of debated Pete Alonzo extension talk. Uh, I'd like to start building the bullpen here, and I started to dive into the Mets offense, which is bothering everybody to the point where I'm hearing people f- say they're. Not juice for the season. Knew that was coming. We talked about it after the Correa situation. Is that not... You see, I kept saying I'm not going to say Correa. Like, we're on a roll. Since Christmas, I think every show Correa's name has come up at least once. I got I to gotta break the streak here and everything like that. So we'll have some stuff to talk about. It's going to be one of those transitional shows where we're, you know, worming our way out from the hot stove into the projective part of spring training. I'm not ready to sit down and tell you what I'm going to be looking for in spring training. Already started to take my notes, so I have a good idea of how my spring training State of the Union is going to be. But we'll wait till my pitchers and catchers, my annual pitchers and catchers show, where I kind of come down, sort of like the talking Mets Pope, so to speak, and say, okay, we're going to start to look at these things so that we all could get on the same page and follow. But this past week... You know, I want to go back real quick before I get to Pete. I want to start off with the Pete Alonzo talk, but I thought it was really interesting. And normally I'd, I'd end the show with something like this, but I had a chance to watch The Natural on a flight, Delta. Our friend Frank 
Frank Frank, that was that was a, a, one of the luminaries on the show. He's probably mad at me now because I think he's a JetBlue pilot, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and I'm sorry if I gave that away, Frank, but I guess you're a JetBlue pilot or he's a competitive pilot. And I, I've been taking JetBlue, but I got to say the terminal at JFK for Delta is a lot better, buddy. And they actually now have movies on Delta, just like JetBlue. And I got to rewatch, rewatch The Natural. And the reason I bring that up is, you know, if you're down on the whole sports scene, you can't wait for the Super Bowl till next week. The weather stinks where you are. Watch some baseball movies. And I know we did that little thing. And baseball, I thought, really blew it with the baseball movie tournament. We never we, – we talked about that back in the spring, and then they were supposed to update us who won. And then I don't think I either – I didn't see it or I forgot about it. And I kept telling you, I think For the Love of the Game is my favorite movie because it had the romance and the, and the, and the whole part that your, your date or your spouse would want. If they're not a big baseball fan, you could get the drama of Kevin Costner, the broken down pitcher, going for the perfect game. And I watched The Natural, an older movie. What is that, from the 80s, The Natural? Late 80s, mid 80s? And I have to tell you, even though there's some real unrealistic baseball things like the hitting the cover off the ball and maybe the four home runs in one game, although that's happened, that's not the the craziest thing. I have to tell you, watching it for the first time in a long time, it's really a great movie. And I think I've read the book. And I have to tell you, I, I think, and I wrote about this over on Instagram, so if you haven't had a chance to to check it out, Talking Mets No G on Instagram. And I think uh in a I think Bill Simmons back about twenty years ago or so tried to reconnect Roy Hobbs uh stats from that year. And it was something like in 115 games, he had forty five home runs, hundred ribbies, you know, walked about eighty times. But uh, you know, I have to say, the music, the drama, the story, it had a little bit of that for the love of the game, romance part. Uh, of course, with Hobbs and the and the love interest, and at the end, it's his son and and he playing catch, which is always something that brings a tear to the to the old father son relationship when it comes to playing catch in baseball. You see that in Field of Dreams as well, right? It was Field of Dreams and um, Costner in that one, and I just thought it was a, a great movie. And if you haven't watched it, which I'm sure you have, watch it. If you haven't watched it in a long time, rewatch it. And then let me know, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G. Let me know what you think. Uh, I had a little, had a chance to throw that out on Instagram. And a little non-sequitur way to start the show, but I was just – it made the ride. I had to go down to Miami for some business. Short trip. It made the ride that much better. And then on the way back, you might ask, did you watch another baseball movie, Mike? Well, no. Last time I took a trip back in August on my last flight, I watched um, – geez, the Gina D- Davis movie about uh, Le- League of Their Own. I watched League of Their Own, which I hadn't watched that back in the early 90s. That was on all the time on cable. And that's just a great movie. Tom Hanks is great in that movie. And uh, on the way back, I watched the original Top Gun. I mean, shoot me. And the reason I did that is because I wanted to watch Maverick this weekend. And I will say, and again, I mean, here we go. We're not even, we haven't even been 10 minutes into the show. I haven't talked to Stitch much baseball. I'm talking to you about movies. You're probably going to kill me here, but Maverick was a great film too. I have to say, I thought that that was good. So anyway, you want to email me about baseball movies. You want to say, Mike, you're a dope. Why are you putting me to sleep here talking about baseball movies? I wanted to talk about the Mets, and away you go. So let's start here. You heard the clip coming in from Jim Duquette, from Andy Martino over at SNY about Pete Alonso. And all week, the debate on Twitter and through Mets fans has been, 
well, can the Mets sign Pete Alonso just like they signed Jeff McNeil? And I'm going to start out by saying I don't think that that's going to happen. I think when you start to read a little bit of the postmortem on or the postscript or the postgame, whatever you want to say, whatever the proper way to put it on the McNeil situation is Jeff McNeil, late bloomer, injury-riddled minor league career, uh, although he's an elite run creator, and right up there with Pete Alonso, just does it differently. Remember, whether you're Brandon Nimmo, Pete Alonso, Jeff McNeil, each one of them approaches the offense a different way, but they all create runs. At the end of the day, it's about scoring points here. So they're all the same in a way, but you can't have a lineup of just one. You have to have a lineup that you know goes up and down. You get my drift. McNeil was somebody that really wanted security. And McNeil was somebody that, if he had hit a certain number from the Mets, was going to sign. There's always that certain, and I've told you this, I've spoken to some ball players, and more so in the fringe guys who have had to work to be in the big leagues and stay in the big leagues. There's this paranoia or need for security because you always feel, rightfully so, because the odds are always against you statistically, that you're always one bad outing away from losing it all or from getting sent down. I told you, a friend of mine who had, had pitched for the Mets out of the bullpen years ago kept saying, you know, one of the reasons why, despite the fact they ran my arm into the ground and I knew it, was simply because he was afraid if he said no that they'd go find somebody else who would allow them to run him into the ground. So uh, when you think about that, when you get a long-term contract, uh, it makes a ton of sense. Now, Pete Alonso, to me, is in a little different situation. First, if you heard Eric Chavez and the comments that Eric Chavez made when he, when I, you know, Mets bench coach was the assistant hitting coach last year, or the hitting, excuse me, the hitting coach last year, um, he talked about how the opposition has basically told him they can't pitch to Pete anymore. They don't know how to pitch to Pete. He's involved. He's evolved into something more than just a home run hitter. And I think as we talked about recently on a show, it might have been last week. The weeks are kind of blending together. The next bar for Pete Alonso, now that he's established, now that he's turned himself into a more complete hitter, the next bar, in my opinion, is to become the best first baseman in the game. How is he going to do that? Improve the defense. I'm not saying he's going to become a gold glover. That might be asking a lot. The sky's the limit there. Hey, you want to become a gold glover? More power to you, Pete. But get up there where he is Paul Goldschmidt and he is Freddie Freeman because I think everybody would agree he might be a tick below. Although from a runner's creation standpoint, since 2019, he's right up there. He's right up there. And for Pete Alonso, and as you heard Jim Duquette's contract proposal, which was a very fair proposal – Puts him at an AAV of $30 million a year, most AAV all time for a first baseman. I think if I'm Pete Alonso, I could potentially be leaving $100 plus million on the table. And I know you all think I'm crazy. I, I saw the comments on Twitter. You know, everybody brings up Matt Olson, everybody brings up Joey Votto. I mean, look, I could go to Spot Trick and I could see the contracts too. I could see what, 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 you know, the old time contracts for a first baseman is, you know, pull holes and all that other stuff. But to me, I do not see the same level of, let's call it anxiety, that McNeil had to get something done because who the heck knows in two years when I'm in my you know, late prime, if you want to call 33, 34 by, this, by today's sports medicine, late prime, what a contact approach, multi-positional player, albeit one that's borderline gold glove, will get on the open market. In the new age baseball, 
a lot more than I think he got from the Mets, but look, everybody has a right to be happy. It's the same thing I said about all these Braves contracts, which clearly if these guys had waited, and they may regret as they get deeper into these contracts, the fact that they're vastly underpaid. You don't come from the backgrounds these guys come from. You don't come from the financial situations these guys come from. They have every right to take the bird in hand instead of two in the bush, which I've been using that a lot, and that might have to go on the Talking Mets bingo card, by the way. So, you know, just a little another non sequitur there. So I don't think there's much for Pete Alonso incentive for Pete Alonso to sign with the Mets before he hits free agency after the 2024 season. That is just me being honest. I don't think it's going to happen. Now, maybe he wants to stay here. Maybe the Mets have another successful season. Maybe they win a championship or they go deep into the playoffs. You get swept up in the moment. And you're like, hey, this is where I want to be. The contract's good enough. Jim Duquette's offer is completely an offer that I think that if you're Alonzo's camp, you want to sign early. It's not that much different, maybe slightly different from the Austin Riley contract, but it's right there. It pretty much takes him throughout any kind of earnings years of his career. He'll be a free agent again, you know, about 35 years, 34, 35 years old. And he's vastly, uh, he's paid handsomely. He's, he's, he's rich beyond belief. And you can't complain about that. And I'll tell you what, I don't think there'd be any bad blood between Pete Alonso and the Mets because if they had just kept Pete Alonso down two extra weeks at the beginning of the 2019 season, which many Mets fans wanted, and members of the media criticized Brody Van Wagenen and the team and an ownership group that was known to always do something to save money for doing that. Meanwhile, those two weeks when Pete got off to a hot start, uh, not having him, I know they didn't make the playoffs, but they were in the hunt till the very end for the most part, they could have... You know, it would have been a much different 2019 season without Pete Alonso. Look, it was the season of Alonzo McNeil. They carried that offense. They, you know, outside of the five starters, the the usual, the Noah, the DeGrom, the Mats, those guys that were the anchors of that club, the offense was those two guys, and that was the Pete Alonso coming out party those first couple of weeks of the season. They could have done that, and they didn't. You know, Pete earned, and, and I've said, he is the template for guys like Beatty and Alvarez, and if you want to throw Vientos in there, he is the template for these guys to go out and earn a spot on a big league club. Just go to spring training and hit the heck out of the ball. And then get your job and keep it by playing at a very high level. I mean, that's it. It's, it's really kind of simple when you come down to it. All the other stuff doesn't matter. It's simple, but it's not. It's complicated at this point. So what's really important to Pete Alonso? Is it AAV? Because he can get that right now by buying out his arbitration years and giving the Mets some cost certainty over a four- or five-year deal, or like Duquette, an eight-year deal? Or is it total dollars? Does he want to get to that $360 million? Does he want to be in the Aaron Judge stratosphere? And I know what you're saying. He's not Aaron Judge. However, if you put a couple of extra years on that thing, you start getting to that $300 million territory. I don't think he gets 35 a year. I don't think he makes it there. There's no precedent for that. But I wouldn't be surprised if he starts to head into Paul Goldschmidt territory with an improved glove. I mean, guys, this is a guy that right now is 12th in baseball in run creation. Paul Goldschmidt was third. I mean, if he's heading into that territory, heading into the Freeman territory, it's not crazy where his AAV could go north of $30 million a year. I don't think it gets to judge territory, but can you not – let me reframe this. Can you see a situation where Pete works his way into continuing to improve? I mean, that's really been the narrative of Pete Alonso since he came into the league. I don't think we're at a point here talking about Pete Alonso and the Mets where it's 
is Pete Alonso a fit to be signed long-term? We know the Mets need Pete Alonso. The Mets drafted an elite power talent, a guy that we knew could hit home runs, a guy that had a dubious glove that many people, myself included, thought, hey, he's probably going to be a first baseman. There was some that said, hey, he's not as bad of a hitter in terms of a complete hitter as you think. And he went through some struggles post-rookie year during the pandemic season, and he adapted and he adjusted and became a really good hitter. As Chavez said, he could go the other way now. He knows how to maybe lay off the slider away. Still working on that. And not easy to bust him inside. If you miss out over the plate with Pete Alonso when you're trying to bust him inside, he's going to punish you. Now, the risk of a long-term deal to a guy who is not going to be that old. If you sign him in the next year or two, he's going into his like age 28 season, maybe 29, younger than Freeman. Let's put it that way. And I know everybody keeps bringing up Matt Olson, but I think Pete Alonso is way better than Matt Olson. I know Matt Olson won a gold glove. To me, Matt Olson is a guy also that can be pitched to lefty on lefty. I'm not sure Pete Alonso is anywhere near that kind of guy. Now, Matt Olson's a tough, tough out. Don't get me wrong. He's a good player. I also think Matt Olson wanted to be in Atlanta and similar to McNeil was looking at the, uh, the bird in hand. Uh, again, I do not think Pete Alonso is that kind of guy. I mean, the narrative of Pete Alonso since he came up is that he thought big, he put big things down on paper, and he went out and he achieved them, whether it be becoming a baseball player and writing about it in college, winning the home run derby, proving people wrong about his defense. I don't think any of you, whether you agree with what I have to say or not, could argue with me at any length that the idea that Pete Alonso looks at his current situation, looks at the kind of year he came off uh, producing in 2022, and isn't sitting home saying, you know what? I want to be the highest paid AAV first baseman of all time whenever he signs that. He'll pro- it'll probably be broken at some point. And I think I deserve to be in the conversation to be one of the highest paid players ever. Now, I know that's crazy. I know that's pr- crazy. But... I don't think it's far-fetched. Now, is he going to get Mike Trout money? Is he going to get uh, Aaron Judge $40 million a year? Uh, you know, I don't think so. But, hey, Francisco Lindor is getting paid $34 million a year, and I'm sorry. I know more premium position. But as an offensive player, I could argue that Pete Alonso is better. Same thing about Corey Sager. Why can't he be in the Nolan Arenado conversation if he improves his defense? Raphael Devers. I mean, Miguel Cabrera, Hall of Famer, I get it, but a DH and was pretty much a DH from the start of his career. He was never a good defensive player. $31 million a year. So the idea that I'm way off base on Pete Alonso, I think, is a little crazy. Do I think $35 million a year is a crazy number? Yeah, I do. 10 years, $350 million, I think that's crazy. But I could see Pete Alonso thinking big. And if you look at Paul Goldschmidt's stats, and if that's the area that we're entering in his prime, the meat of his prime, he would be signing a deal at the same age that Carlos Beltran, who, by the way, got a job with the Mets just, you know, 25 minutes ago, it sounded like, to be in the Mets front office. So it's funny how he comes back full circle. When Carlos Beltran won the free market, uh, open market, and got that seven-year deal, it was the same same time. When you're in that 27, 28, 29-year-old, you know, prime age, you know when you sign a seven, eight, nine-year deal, you're going to probably get four or five really good years because that's the sweet spot of your career. You've figured out all the BS. You're not yet declining. 
from a skill set, and you're going to get the best of that player, which is really what the Mets got from 06 to 08. You know, 09 too, he got his, he hurt his knee in 09, but you get what, I, get what I'm saying. So I think it's crazy to, to think anything else. I think it's crazy to think that this is a wild situation. I know everyone said, oh, look at what Freeman got. Well, Freeman was a lot older. Look at what Olsen got. He's better. I'm putting Pete Alonzo in the Freeman-Goldschmidt pantheon. I'm not doing that with Matt Olson. Maybe I'm being harsh because I know he's got a good glove and everything, but I think Pete Alonso's better. I think we have to understand what we're seeing in front of us is not only an elite power hitter, but a guy that's evolving and becoming better and very well will, be go, will go down depending on how long he stays here as the best, best Mets positional player of all time, better than David Wright. I mean, that's not crazy. And if he sticks around here, he's going to break the home run records that are out there, too, for the Mets anyway. And he's a guy that if he stays healthy, he'll probably hit. He has a shot probably to hit 500 home runs. Now, there's always a risk when you give a long-term deal to a right-handed batter that as he gets later in his career and his bat slows, you could have a real ugly type of situation. Think of a guy like uh, Richie Sexton. Richie Sexton's bat slowed down and it became downright ugly. You know, downright ugly. I mean, tons of strikeouts, you know, still had the power, but couldn't hit anymore. And that was by his early 30s, 32, 33. So the body, how he keeps his body up, things that the Mets would know being behind the scenes with him, uh, that's something that uh, they'd have to take into consideration. So that's my feeling on Pete. That's my feeling on the Pete Alonso contract. Obviously, you guys have strong thoughts. Uh, I'd love to hear them. And uh, do I think Pete will sign an extension before he's a free agent? No, not this not this year. Not this year. I could see next offseason as they head towards arbitration, maybe something happening. And I think it's going to cost the Mets, and I think it's going to cost them at least $30 million for eight years, like Duquette says, $30 million a year for eight years. I wouldn't be surprised if you got some uh, some offers that will go into the, you know, the ninth or tenth year. And I wouldn't be surprised if we go north of $30 million. I know you think that's crazy. But start to think about what I said. Look at the historical contracts. Look at some of the guys getting $33, $32 million a year. And when you start to look at what Pete Alonso produces, how he creates runs, don't just look at the counting statistics. Look at how he creates runs. Look at how he's improving on defense. Um, I think you have to rethink how good the player that you have is, is in front of you. With, let's face it, iffy protection in the lineup. We'll talk about the lineup after the break, but... He's been protected by guys like uh, Escobar and Vogelback, guys that are good, not great, certainly not Carlos Correa. I said that name again, didn't I? But uh, you get my drift. All right, let's take a quick break. I haven't forgotten the mailbag. You guys have sent me some mailbags. And as I said throughout the show, what I'm going to do is incorporate the question. See, I don't do a mailbag segment. That would be a copycat thing that a billion other shows do. I incorporate your comments and give you credit into the show. Some of the stuff you you send me, I already kind of figured I'd talk about. I'm still going to give you credit. Some of the stuff I didn't think about. And some of the stuff spurs a larger conversation on a topic that I had planned or not had planned. You get the drift. All right. Let's take a quick break. We'll talk about the Mets offense, the depth, bullpen, so much more right after this. Mets fans, I want to take a quick break from talking baseball and let you know about the next top prospect in building a smart home. Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is that big-time new star prospect. 
The Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is a smart lock, a 2K resolution camera, and a doorbell. It's three devices in one, triple the security. You know triples are rare in baseball, but not with Eufy. You can have everything in one device rather than install many pieces on your front door. It's not just for security, but also for convenience. Just the other night, I had tons of packages in the rain. Rather than fumble for my keys, I easily entered my home. This is big since I have four dogs who are impatiently waiting for me at the door. No more concerns about losing keys, and you could assign passwords to your family members. Worried about when your loved ones are getting home? Eufy allows you to see them coming back home via the integrated camera. Hey Mets fans, this is a home run. I had a competitive product before Eufy, and it's the difference between a one-dimensional hitter and a five-tool player. Eufy is that five-tool superstar. Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com to learn more. Already sold? Go to Amazon and get your Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Want to go to the store? Best Buy will have it starting around May 20th. Get complete control over your front door at ease with the Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. The Talking Mets podcast is available on many outlets, but the most popular is Apple Podcast. Hi, I'm Mike Silva, the host of the Talking Mets podcast, and I encourage you to leave a review about the program on Apple. Just rate it one to five stars, hopefully a five because why wouldn't you? And then if you have time, leave a review. It helps the podcast continue to grow and encourages others to take a listen. You can also email me at MikeSilva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G, TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Hope to hear from you soon and enjoy the rest of the show. All right, we're back. Talking about this podcast here. So we kicked off with some Pete Alonzo talk and some of you guys. And like I said, if you sent me a mailbag question or a comment, either on Twitter or at Mike Silva at TalkingAboutThisPodcast.com, no G, I'll eventually get to it. Sometimes there's the flow of the show. I'm not going to get to every question every week. What I want to do is incorporate your comments into the flow of the show, and I try to prioritize things that are more time-sensitive, although that doesn't really apply right now, you know, this time of the year, but there's some stuff that can. And um, I think there was a couple of questions, one by Jonathan Lesh. I uh, hope I sp- uh, said your name correctly, Jonathan, your last name, and one by our friend Michael Hirsch. So Michael Hirsch, you know, talked about, and I'll paraphrase it here, essentially how the fans are condemning Darren Ruff, he seems to become like the poster child of what they don't like about the offense. And there is a, as Billy Upler has said, a history of him hitting uh, left-handed pitching. And Eduardo Escobar had a pretty lousy season up until September. And I think he gets similarly maybe some grief, but not as much as Ruff. And it got me into thinking about the Mets offense because I don't want to tease a little bit about my spring training focuses, but I feel pretty good about the bullpen. I'll get to that in another segment. I feel pretty good about the starting rotation, and I'll tell you what, and I'll get more in depth on on that another day because I know something was written about it this week. Having Peterson and McGill, both who drive me crazy for different reasons. One, I question whether he's going to stay healthy in McGill. The other, Peterson, it's just the command is just not always there. But there's no doubt he has elite strikeout pitch in that slider. I mean, it's got like over 50% strikeout rate 
when he gets ahead, he's a dangerous pitcher. And we've seen him pitch very well. And let's face it, between McGill and Peterson and Trevor Williams, who's no longer there, the Mets put together well over 30 starts from those kind of pitchers and bridged the gap to when Jacob deGrom came back in August. So you got to feel good where the rotation is. You feel much better, at least I do, about the bullpen now that they made some moves this offseason. But now that Correa, there's that name again, is not in the lineup, is not going to be part of the Mets, I know that there's some disappointment about the offense, which is, uh, you know, the brownouts that happen frequently, especially down the stretch, some of them against bad teams like the Cubs, some against, obviously, in the postseason against San Diego, and then that big series down in Atlanta when, it, you know, they weren't able to work the pitchers, work the pitch counts. It's an offense that I know people say they don't hit enough home runs. They were slightly below league average in home runs. To me, the strength of this offense is working the pitchers, working the count, passing the baton. It's not always a sexy offense outside of the Alonzo, you know, Lindor, McNeil type of situation. Even Nimmo, not a sexy offensive player. You need to break him down a little bit. Now, I started to think about how can a team that uh, was pretty decent offensively, you know, scored when they were healthy and had the a competent DH combo, which I'll get to in a minute, scored about 4.8 runs per game. And the projections that we have, the Talking Mets back-of-the-paper bag projections, we have a 4.8 to 5.2 runs per game variability. Plenty of offense to support the kind of pitching staff they have, the starters, which which we hope, even with some age, is as good as it was last year. And a bullpen that probably could shut you down for, you know, nearly 12 outs. Let's face it. They might be able to get, not every night, but if they needed to get 12 outs, I feel a hell of a lot better about them getting 12 outs from this group, at least on paper, than the group they had last year. And they weren't really able to improve that group much. Michael Givens, eh, you know, maybe that's a little bit of an upgrade, but you get my point. I think bringing in guys like David Robertson, bringing back Adam Adovino, uh, Raleigh, guys like that, you know, there's a little bit of a, 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 it's a little bit better than what we expected. So why are we bothered about the offense? I've been thinking about this. And I think there's two reasons why we're bothered about the offense. One is the bottom third of the lineup. The Escobar, Nervarez, uh, Nito, DH spot bothers you a lot. Why? Because you've seen them get bupkis out of the DH spot for a couple of years. Thank you, J.D. Davis. Thank you, Dom Smith. Escobar... Is he the September Escobar, which is clearly not the player. September, he was basically making up for lost time. But in the second half, you got more the Arizona Escobar that you paid for, where he hit 273, had an OPS 825. I think there is going to be always a streaky component to Escobar. Clearly, he's going to hit right-handed better than he's going to hit left-handed. But that's a good enough player to be down there in the seventh hole. I've always said he's like Scott Brocious. I think he's good enough defensively. You have Guillaume as, Guillaume as a defensive replacement. Um, you know, they're slightly upgraded with Navarez and Nito, but I know what you feel. It's, you know, it could be a black hole. Both were at times last year, Navarez with a Milwaukee, a black hole. You're looking for the catch and throw out of that position. And then the DH spot, you know, Darren Ruff has become the poster child for what everything is wrong with the Mets. But if you really think about it, the DH spot is going to be manned more by Daniel Vogelback than it will be by Ruff, because if Ruff is just going to play against lefties, majority of the starters you're going to see are right-handed. So the production from the DH spot 
is going to be more tied into what Daniel Vogelback, who looks very svelte, if you ask me, by some of the Instagram pictures. Now, I don't know if, if – and I said this last week. Is Vogelback losing weight because he's getting married or has gotten married and wants to be in pictures? Is it a Instagram filter? We won't know until we see him in the spring. I'm sure it will be asked by the reporters rather early. Um, but if I told you – and let's go and let's use Billy Epler's probabilistic. It's a probabilistic world. Remember that show? Knowing the sample size that Ruff had, knowing that there's a decent enough sample size against right-handed pitching for Volgaback, Volgaback against right-handers, Ruff against lefties. If I told you a DH, an unnamed DH, John Doe would hit 25 home runs, 75 RBIs, and have about 800 OPS. Not Carlos Correa. You can't call it Carlos Correa, that, that position. But that kind of production out of the DH spot, would you accept it? And I think most of you would, and quite honestly... If you took Ruff's 2021 against left-handers in San Francisco and Vogelback's 2022 against right-handers, just happened last year, and Ruff in 2021 pretty much in San Francisco produced what you'd expect against left-handed pitching, I think that's a very realistic, it's not a far-fetched projection, and that is a decent player. Now, do you feel good that in a big spot against elite pitching and those guys are good protection for Pete Alonso? I get that. You know, Vogelback works the count pretty well. He's a guy that gets on base. You can't just, you're not going to get him out by swinging at too many bad pitches. And I know he's a, a clog on the base pads, but if he's lost some weight, I think he was about 270 pounds last year, maybe more. If he's gotten down to where he could at least be somewhat ambulatory and maybe even play a little first base in a pinch. That might be asking a lot. Where he doesn't have to be pinch run for because he completely can't make it around the bases. Can he get a little bit better against left-handed pitching where you don't have to pinch it for him in the fourth inning in a big spot with Ruff if they change pitchers or the sixth inning? That is a really good part of the lineup. And I think what's bothering you about the bottom third is that it's component-based. It's not superstar-based. It's not Correa. It's not Otani. Those are not the names. It's not even Conforto, a guy that... You have no idea what he's going to produce, but everybody would have loved to have him back and probably would have felt better about the offense if it uh, happened. Now, Jonathan Lesh, you know, I brought up our friend uh, Michael Hirsch bringing up about Ruff and Esquire. Now, Jonathan Lesh says, you know, basically the Mets lacked power last year. They were slightly below league average. Um, And he brings up Alvarez and about the black hole to catching spot and how Alvarez, and he's 100% right. Jonathan, you're 100% right. Alvarez solves the power problem. He lengthens the lineup if he is as advertised in a big way. And obviously he eliminates what was one of the, maybe the, yeah, probably I would say the DH spot, but catcher was right there. Um, a weak part of the Mets offense. Now remember for a big part of the year, not September, the Mets got very little out of their catching spot, very little out of their DH spot, two spots in the lineup where they got. And when Escobar didn't hit a third of the lineup was complete trash. Now, they won 101 games with that. Thank you, starting pitching. Thank you, elite seasons from McNeil, Nimmo, Pete, Lindor. Uh, Thank you, bullpen. Thank you, Edwin Diaz. You know, winning a lot of those close games, being perfect, basically perfect. You can't rely on that again. Now, the thing that Jonathan is asking, and is something that I think will be a big theme throughout spring training, is... And I guess it's a lot of people scratching their head is it seems like Alvarez is ticketed for AAA because of some of the comments by Billy Epler. And the question is, is he so bad defensively that he can't catch our fourth and fifth starters and play DH for starters one to three? What needs to happen to get him up into the big leagues? 
I think the scenario that you just painted is something that the Mets don't want to do day one. And I think that they're going to go into this season feeling good about, let's ride it out with the current lineup in that bottom three. Because I gave you some positive trends with the DH spot, with the platoon, with Escobar after he had some of the issues off the field get, get corrected, how he was more himself in the second half. And Navarez may boost that lineup. And he's going to play more than Nito because he's going to see more righties and lefties. So off the bat, they feel that the problems on the offense they had last year have been solved to a degree, which means that the variability of the scoring may be more north than south. Okay? They want to see if Alvarez, in my opinion, I don't have any information on this, they want to see if Alvarez has the ability to be an everyday catcher to catch the entire rotation and hit at an elite level. Do you have Mike Piazza? The real question with Alvarez here is, do you have Mike Piazza? Do you have a guy that could catch at a decent enough level and do a, 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 you know, Mike was not the greatest at throwing out base runners, but he was able to call a ball game. He was able to block the plate. He was able to block pitches. He was not a, he was a very serviceable catcher. Probably in some ways, Mike Piazza was an underrated catcher. And that's, and that's fact that other people will tell you that that's not a Met fan opinion. Others that have no vested interest in him being a Met would tell you that. And then hit at that elite level. You know, can can that happen with Alvarez? And I think the only way they're going to find out is with seasoning a AAA. And maybe, you know, you see a situation where he spends a month down there or six weeks or maybe till June 1st. I think the first eight weeks of the season to Memorial Day, that getting to know you phase, I know some of you get drive you crazy with that. The Mets are going to try to see what they have with those three spots they're going to try to see how the new rules play into the catching position because that's a big part of the season. And I think Alvarez is going to be able to go down to the minor leagues, hit a little bit, show that he's healed, what he had the foot problem or something, show that he's healed, and take all the pressure off that could possibly be on him. And then you'll, you'll see. Now, if he goes down to the minor leagues, shows no penchant for improving his defense, but the bat plays big, then yeah, depending on how rough and Vogelback are, they'll probably have to find a spot for him. If you're going to hit with the kind of power that Alvarez has, you're going to have a spot. You're going to have a spot, even if it's replacing Ruff as the right-handed portion of the DH. Um, if, you know, he does everything, he gets the job, depending on what Navarre is and Nito is. And, you know, one thing about Buck Showalter, when you come to spring and you earn a job and you earn a spot, you contribute as part of the team, he's not just ready to throw you to the Wolves for potential you have to earn your position with Buck Showalter and 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 that's what Alvarez is gonna have to do I still think Alvarez is a work in progress defensively not that I have that information as a scout's eye um I think you know everything you read is that he's good but you have a win now Cy Young Hall of Fame staff a Japanese pitcher coming over here for the first time and that's a transition and a couple of veteran starters on the back end that, you know, probably aren't hard to catch, but, you know, want a professional catcher back there. As a pitcher, nothing is more frustrating than having a guy that doesn't know how to call a game or can't frame or is just not comfortable to pitch to. Pitch to. It just makes everything that much harder. It makes a difficult job that much harder during a time where there are new rules that add some variability or some newness to the routine that they don't need. So that's kind of like how I feel about Alvarez. That's how I feel about the offense. I don't think it's as bad as what we all think. I think you're bothered by the variability. 
Correa eliminated that. We had the numbers that proved that. He's not here. Now, the one thing that is very important to this offense, and actually a danger, actually a storm cloud, which could be a thunderbolt, is if this offense sustains significant injury, and what I'm talking about is what happened to Marte at the end of the season, or God forbid the times we held our breath with Pete getting beamed and maybe his hand getting broken. Same with Nimmo. You know, when Lindor fractured his finger and played through it, that could have been debilitating. Um, what can they rely on depth? Now, if you look at the outfield, that's where you really have some problems. Yeah, you have Tommy Pham. Because Vogelback and Ruff are so one-dimensional, they're more of a – Ruff is a DH. I mean, excuse me, Vogelback is a DH. Ruff is a DH who kind of play right field, but not really. Um, you have some problems. Now – you know, Khalil Lee's got his off-the-field issues. You know, I never was a big fan of what I saw. Good glove, couldn't hit the side of a barn. Tommy Pham is a component player. I'm not sure he's an everyday player. Mark Vientos is a DH. Danny Mendick is an all-around-the-diamond component player, utility guy. We don't know. I mean, Mauricio's uh, – there's talk of him putting him in the outfield. We have no idea. Um, you know, same thing with Beatty. I think Alvarez – then becomes more necessary because you're going to need to boost the offense up in that situation. The real key, I think, and this is interesting, is that if Escobar hits, but you're not getting production at a DH spot, there was a great article at The Athletic, and if you haven't subscribed to The Athletic, I have no vested interest in this, you should, about Brett Beatty. Beatty's been working with Troy Tulowitzki, putting in the reps to be a better third baseman. As I said, my issue with Beatty is... I've heard great things about the bat and certainly the work ethic. And in the article that they wrote at The Athletic, it was it was clear that he's gone to this kind of Tulowitzki boot camp and Tulowitzki's put him through the ringer and Beatty's all for it. It's the defense, his ability to get his mechanics down where he becomes a decent defensive player. It's not like he doesn't have the physical tools. I think mechanically he has to improve. And he's a tall guy, so maybe that could come into play. You saw how Alec Bohm over in Philadelphia got better after – you know, basically being a clunker for the first couple of years of his career. Got better. It's not perfect, but he got better. And Philly survived with him. But I am a defense guy. Now, the thing that the Mets have that potentially could mitigate anything, putting Beatty in the lineup, is that Guillermo could come in with the glove down the, late in the games and neutralize any of that so that you could get your glove late in the game. Uh, but he certainly doesn't have the hitting uh, prowess that Beatty possesses or has the potential for. I think having Alvarez, having Beatty as depth, Gives them some protection if that lineup has troubles with injuries. And obviously gives them some options if, in the bottom third, the catching situation, the third base situation doesn't work out. But it's clumsy if you start to see injuries to certain positions. It becomes more difficult to get the offense improved because you don't have guys that could sub in. We don't know. You know, Mauricio had a great winter campaign in the Dominican Winter League. But where is he going to play? I mean, he can play shortstop if, if Lador goes down, but who knows what kind of shortstop he is. And then the downgrade in defense. Make no mistake about it. The Mets are a, a team that's built on strong pitching, defense, contact. And if you eat away at that with injuries, the depth is there, but it becomes a completely different team. The good news is the part of the lineup and the positions that you have some questions on, there are some young options. Not that much different. Then back in 2015, when you went into the season with some questions about the pitching staff in the back end, and you had guys like Syndergaard and Mats that were in the wings and got brought up, and all of a sudden a pitching staff that was okay 
with the Grom and Harvey anchoring it became elite with the the four aces. So you could maybe see some of that with Beatty and Alvarez. And you got to feel really good. If you read the article about Beatty and the work he's doing with Tulowitzki, you got to feel really good about the attitude. I mean, that to me is the best part of all this Beatty talk is you could give me the stats and the projections and he seems like a good kid and he had that, you know, home run in his first at bat. He seemed to, you know, not hit a ton when he was uh, the, the 10 or 11 games that he was here in August when Escobar was out, but he held his own. He had some big hits, showed some pop, you know, he showed some good ball, uh, bat to ball contact skills. It wasn't like he was Joey Gallo up there. Um, you know, with the shift going away, does that help him as a left-handed batter? I guess we'll see. So my message to you guys, you know, specifically is we got to calm down about the rough hate. We got to calm down about Alvarez. Nothing is perfect day one coming out of spring. That's why it's a 162-game season, and that's why I split the season in three, getting to know what you have, going out there and addressing those needs and building to the trade deadline, and then you go out and you go and win the damn thing and you get hot at the right time, which the Mets did pretty much everything but get hot at the right time last year. That's the blueprint. That's the blueprint you put coming out of Port St. Lucie. Obviously, the, there's no yellow brick road, as we said, to winning a championship. It's always filled with, you know, you know, potholes and demons and thunderbolts and all the go- corny, goofy things that we talk about on this show. So we'll see. So hopefully that puts to rest some of your concerns about the offense. I think the variability bothers you, but they're going to be going into the season with the variability, and there are some answers to that. You got to sit back, relax, and let this thing play out, and and maybe have some agita along the way with some losses. So, anyway, let's take a quick break. When we return, we're going to build the bullpen because why not? I love bullpens. I love playing uh, bullpens. I love Stratomatic managing a bullpen. We're going to build the Mets bullpen, which I think is better than it was last year. And I think there've been there's been some questions as to who do I see rounding out that bullpen. We'll talk about that more right after this. One of my favorite topics, and it was funny, our friend in Talking Mets Luminary, Jeff Cohen, who has a great show about baseball and barbecues, I think he had Turk Wendell on recently, so go check it out, uh, wrote me a uh, uh, a mailbag about a week ago, basically saying, you know, the old adage goes, you never have enough pitching. Uh, Jeff, just like I, you know, has the same philosophy I do, you got to go deeper into games. We know that that doesn't happen in today's day and age. Bullpen, bullpen, bullpen. Mets were able to get away with, eh, let's face it, some guys like Michael Givens, Joely Rodriguez. You know, Drew Smith was spotty at times, but they were able to get away with a bullpen that really was Edwin Diaz and Adam Adovino. And then you had production from everybody else who got hot and then didn't get hot, Lugo, so on and so forth. So they have some interesting names that have been brought into the fold, not just big names like a David Robertson, but some other names, some more under-the-radar moves, depth moves that are out there. And Jeff uh, wants to you know, ask me, hey, who are the eight guys that are going to come out of the bullpen? Because let's face it, 26-man roster, 13-13. and 13, Nobody ever does anything less than the maximum 13 pitchers that they could bring north with the club. So you're going to have eight guys coming out of the bullpen. And I think right now, as you know, I was going through this earlier today, and then I was looking at it again during the break, I think you have... Five of those eight, barring injuries, solidified. And I can probably tell you what their roles are going to be here on February 5th. 
you know, no game tomorrow. Everybody's well rested. I could tell you what their roles are going to be. Obviously, you have the elite closer in Diaz. You have David Robertson, who's the you know closer as well, and can get lefties out. So he's almost like a situational lefty. Robertson could give Diaz a blow and be the closer. Adovino probably slides into the seventh inning. Uh, Drew Smith and Brooks Rayleigh. So it's Rayleigh, not Rowley. See, I got to get this name right because you guys are going to kill me. I said Adovino wrong 50,000 times throughout this season, and you guys all got uh, Adovino. Adovino, not Adovino. See, see, it's the way I, my accent, I think, kind of says it. Adovino, and 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 I said that wrong. So we got to get Rayleigh. Brooks Rayleigh, he's the lefty coming out of the bullpen that also could get righties out. Drew Smith. So if you had to go six, seven, eight, nine. Let's say you got to get 12 outs out of a bullpen in a situation where the starter can't go more than five. You go some combination of Drew Smith and Rayleigh early. You go Adovino, Robertson, Diaz, seven, eight, nine. Those are the roles. And then obviously you can play around with leverage and things like that, depending on how the game goes. That's the blueprint. That's the best laid plans. Now, you've got five members of the bullpen solidified. Where do the other three go? And here's what I'm going to tell you guys as you go into spring training and you look at all the different names that our friend Jeff Cohen and some of the others are bringing up, like Bryce Montes de Oca, Stephen Ridings, Jeff Brigham, the uh, Rule 5 draftee Zach Green, Jimmy Yacobonis, who's a non-roster invitee. You have some young pitchers in the minor leagues, and you know, fifth-round pick Eric Orz. Orzy, is it Orzy or Orz? Orzy? Uh, again, you know, let them get called up, and I'll learn their names properly. I mean, what are you going to do here? Kill me? Uh, the guy they got in, in the deal... Uh, uh, with uh, Jeff Brigham, uh, Eliza Hernandez, who could be kind of a another starting pitching depth uh, type, you know, maybe a second lefty. Joey Lucchese's potentially there. So the first thing I'd say to everybody is, I don't believe Peterson and McGill will come north out of the bullpen. They're either going to be in the rotation because somebody's hurt, or they're going to be in AAA getting ready to get the call. I think that's the way it's going to be. Maybe Peterson could sneak in to a role if they want to go. And I know that one of the questions people have had is would they go with six-man rotation? I don't think they would bless off on that uh, because I don't think Scherzer would like it. But it's it's all going to go. Anything they do with the rotation to bring Peterson up north to get him some starts is going to be based on what Verlander and Scherzer need. Maybe to a certain degree, Kodai Senga. But maybe, you know, that's the one variable. Would Senga be the guy that needs a little extra rest because he only pitched once a week in Japan that that uh, that requires them to bring up Peterson. See, to me, that that that's that's kind of something that, you know, we don't know right now. We have to learn more about that in the spring. So I'm going to assume the answer to that is no, that uh, that Singa is coming here to pitch every f- five days like everybody else, like a big boy. Um, so then it really comes down to options. And you heard Billy Epler talk about options being a big deal. Now, Nagosik and Zach Green, who's the Rule 5 draftee from the Yankees, who they seem to be high on, do not have any options. If you, You're going to lose Green if, you don't, if he doesn't make the club. He's going to go back to the Yankees. So assuming he has a good spring and he does what they believe he can do, he'd be number six, another righty. Nagosik, in a way, because he doesn't have options and pitch pretty well and show that he could go multiple innings, he may be a pseudo, not exactly, because Trevor Williams is a starter. He could be your guy that goes two or three innings. That would be seven. You'd probably want to give those guys a chance early to show they're worth keeping. Because if they have good springs, unless you see something in spring that's, you know, hey, this is not going to play in the regular season. He's doing this against inferior competition. Put them on. 
you know, you're looking about your sixth or seventh pitcher here. You're talking about guys that you can pitch when you're way ahead, eat innings when you're behind. You know, you, you don't have, they're not going to be high leverage guys. You have your leverage guys. I, I named those five. And then that leaves one final spot. To me, the biggest wild card that can make this bullpen go from very good to scary good when healthy is John Curtis. Because John Curtis, when he was with Miami during the pandemic season with Tampa, was starting to enter elite status, like high leverage late inning elite status before he hurt his arm. Now, we don't know. He's been out for over a year. We don't know the health. Obviously, we saw with Matthew Allen how Tommy John surgery, as much as everybody thinks it's an oil change for pitchers, it's not. It's not always an oil change. Bad things can happen. But I think John Curtis is a guy that if he shows he's healthy and performs in spring training, I know he has an option. That's the only thing that I think might prevent him from making the club is that he has an option. Uh, And the same thing with Joey Lucchese, who may actually be better equipped uh, than Nagosik, as well as Eliza Hernandez, to do that Trevor Williams role. Do you really need the second lefty if you have Robertson and Rayleigh there? Do you really need the second lefty? Because let's face it, Joely Rodriguez, if you want a second lefty in a three-batter rule game, Joely Rodriguez was a situational lefty extraordinaire. And you liken that division with Harper eventually after he comes back and Schwarber and guys like that to have the second lefty, but you're not playing as many games in division anymore. It's not like it was a year ago. You're playing a balanced schedule. So how important is that? And with Robertson... Do you really need that? That's a really good question. You don't want to just have two lefties on the, on the roster for the sake of having two lefties. And you want to keep guys that have options to give you that uh, flexibility. And that's why I think Green, for obvious reasons because of the Rule 5 status, and Nagosik because of his, uh, the fact that his options are out, are good shots to make the team with a decent, uh, with a decent spring. And then Curtis, to me, is the wild card. And then if Curtis doesn't make it, that's when you get into Luke Casey's and stuff like that. Uh, with a triple-A rotation of Peterson, McGill, let's say Luke Casey's more suited for, you know, the uh, you know, start there. Jose Buto, you now go nine deep on the rotation. And you're going to need them for doubleheaders and for injuries and all the other stuff that goes on. That's some pretty interesting depth that you could go into the season with. That makes me feel good about the doubleheaders. That makes me feel good if Scherzer needs inevitably what he needs, a blow for two weeks because of a tight oblique or he's just not feeling perfect and he needs to go get his oil changed a little bit uh, in the middle of July. Or the Mets want to skip and give him a rest because of his age, because he's feeling a little tired. Hey, we have a soft part of the schedule. We could win without Max Scherzer over the next couple of weeks. Let's slide in Lucchese. Let's slide in McGill. Let's slide in Peterson. Let's slide in Eliza Hernandez, whatever, on type of th- on that kind of situation. But I'll say this, and this is really, and, and, and it's one of the names that I'm going to be looking at in spring training. I'll give you a little early precursor here. John Curtis is a name I'm really intrigued by because if he's going to pitch like he did in Tampa, like he did in Miami before he got traded to Milwaukee and got hurt, you've now added another high-leverage arm. You won't, you won't start out in high leverage. Certainly won't start out in high leverage. But he's one that can develop into that with performance. You know, you start him in the sixth inning or so as he produces and, ha- and how he looks, how the process looks. All of a sudden, he gets to the seventh, gets to the eighth. And look, I love Adam Adovino, and he had a great year. He was one of the top relievers in all of baseball. And has he figured something out with Jeremy Hefner? Let's hope. But his walk rate being, or his com- and his command and control being so elite is such an outlier in his career. 
that you have to think there's going to be some regression there. We saw a little bit of that in the San Diego series. I know it's just one game, but he needed to get bailed out of a blowout game, which got scary with Seth Lugo coming in against Josh Bell. Don't forget that because he just couldn't get the ball over the plate. And if you want to play inches with the strike zone and knowing his delivery is a little slower, can they take advantage of him on the base paths? You want, you, there are going to be situations where he may not be a fit in a tight game against certain clubs with speed and what have you. So that's what I'll be saying. Another name out of the bullpen, Bryce Montes de Oca. Uh, look, let's see. Let's see what that's all about. about. Uh, nasty six slider. We see that highlight from the Miami. His, I think it was his debut. That six slider he threw. Uh, the walk rate would drive is going to drive me bananas. And I'll tell you what, guys. Walks. Guys who walk six, seven per nine like uh, de Oca did in the minor leagues. He's not a young guy. He's in his mid-20s. With this new, you know, rules, with not being able to throw over more than once, the bigger bases, base runners, you can't go around and mess around with base runners. You're giving up doubles. Walks are doubles. To some teams, walks are doubles. I would put a high premium emphasis on guys who get the ball over the plate. I've always been like that. I think that that philosophy is that much more important now as we get into the new baseball world. 100%. And the great part about this Mets, uh, you know, roster, you know, you do have some guys, some young guys that are potential bullpen arms, like a Josh Walker, a lefty. I, t- I, meant, I mentioned Orzi. Uh, you know, guys with with options like Peterson, McGill, Lucchese, Budo for the rotation, who also could potentially go out there and um, come out of the bullpen. Steven Ridings, they got him off of waivers from the Yankees, has options. Jeff Brigham was in the big leagues with the Marlins last year. Not bad. Probably more of a sixth-inning guy. And in, let's not forget the, the veterans. Tommy Hunter, TJ McFarland. You know, Tommy Hunter is a, uh, a Buck Showalter favorite. You know, maybe if Curtis doesn't show his ability to come out of the gate healthy, maybe Tommy Hunter takes that spot. But, you know, let's face it. Tommy Hunter has some serious back issues, and he showed that he's going to need uh, DL stints for, let's basically, rest. I know he's a good veteran influence, and I know Buck likes having those kind of guys on the roster. I wouldn't put it past him to make the roster, but I'm going to question whether or not that's realistic because of health, because he's already shown that he's a little fragile the couple of years he's been with the Mets. But he was able to eat up some valuable innings throughout the season. He's not a high-leverage guy. He's not a guy you want to put in uh, frequently when there's a tight game, but he's a guy that can give you some good innings when the bullpen has you know, it was a little short because of guys being overused or a blowout game or just want to eat some innings because you want to get through the day's actions. You know, that's it's as simple as that. So my prediction, early prediction, Diaz Robertson, Adovino, Drew Smith, Rayleigh, uh, Nagosik and Green, 6-7, and seven, John Curtis, 8. The rest are on the outside looking in. They have options. No Tommy Hunter. Uh, no Yakabonis. You know, do they go down to Syracuse and continue their careers? You know, that's a whole other story, depending on when their opt-outs are in uh, their contracts. And with the WBC, you know, obviously it's going to be a little bit harder to evaluate some of this talent because they're not going to be playing against the best of the best all the time due to the fact that the best of the best is going to be uh, off in a tournament. So that's the early run of the bullpen, thanks to our good friend and uh, Talking Mets luminary Jeff Cohen baseball and barbecue uh, great podcast for bringing up that uh, comment and question so all right let's take a quick break and we're going to wrap up your listening to the talking about podcast we'll be back with more right after this we do more than just the big league team here on the talking Mets podcast like when brooklyn cyclones play-by-play announcer keith rad stopped by and talked to us about 2019 third round pick matthew allen 
a lot of people said he kind of looks like a young Matt Harvey, which on the stuff side is, is amazing. He's got kind of that, that young Harvey-looking face, and he comes in the other night, like you said, and he throws, he's supposed to throw two innings, you know, high school guy, keep him, keep him on a limit. He throws two perfect innings, okay, Allen's done, and then they send him out there for another inning, and everyone was like kind of gasping, oh my goodness, this is <laughs> this is the future, they're going to let him go out for another inning, you know, this is somewhat unheard of at this level. And he goes out and shoves for another inning, and um, you know he's throwing 96, and he's got a he's got a hammer at 80, and these guys can't touch it. Like I couldn't imagine, you know, he's just you know shoving in high school, and he's you know shoving now in the pros. Um, he he's got a really great makeup. Listen to this and more at www.talkimentspodcast.com. the way I played that Matthew Allen promo. I recorded that promo in 2019 at the end of the year when the Cyclones won the championship with, by the way, new Mets broadcaster, or reportedly new Mets broadcaster, Keith Rad, uh, a talking Mets alumni. I think he's been on a couple of times, Keith Rad, on the program, but uh, has been on the show a couple of times. He's going to be taking over for Wayne Randazzo on the booth with Howie Rose. So if that's true, if the rumors are true, Keith, congratulations. Remember, you got your start here in Talking Mets. Don't forget about us. You know, we'd love to have you on again when uh, the time is right. Um, but, oh, wow, at Matthew Allen having Tommy John surgery basically again. And it goes back to show you, and uh, it's a little fun game. It was actually a mailbag question, another mailbag question that we'll get to another day. Uh, you know, what is the success rate of prospects and how fast and fleeting prospects are? And I guess it goes back to the deadline and some of the conversation that we had when the Mets didn't really go all in for Soto or, you know, who knows if Otani's available at this year's deadline and, um, you know, what that looks like. If the Pirates are looking for a, a, a Soto ransom for Brian Reynolds, a nice player, but not Juan Soto, not Otani. I mean, trades are going to get expensive. Let's put it this way. It's just amazing how the league has turned it around. It used to be nobody wanted to give up prospects and you couldn't get anything. And now it's the opposite. It's like this old. It's like groupthink. It's just. It's just amazing how things go. But uh, Matthew Allen, we we wish him well. We wish him a, a speedy recovery. It looks like he's he hasn't thrown a pitch, a professional pitch, since 2019. Next time he throws a pitch, it'll be nearly five years. Remember something. Stephen Matz went through something similarly, where it took him a long time to get himself going in the organization, and and because of health and arm issues and things like that. And when he did, he was a very serviceable pitcher, and he's put himself into a decent big league career. Maybe not the career we thought. We thought of him more as a top end of the rotation guy. He's more of a four or five, but uh, a, a pretty solid career. He's going to make some money. Nothing wrong with that. You, you and I would love to be making that kind of money, and away you go. So um, can't really uh, can't really complain how Stephen Matz turned out. Maybe Matthew Allen has a similar trajectory, but uh, right now not looking too good. Uh, on that. And of course, congratulations to Keith Rad. Uh, as we wrap up, and I may give my final thoughts, um, Howie from Flushing. I don't think it's Howie Rose. Howie from Flushing wrote, Hey, Mike, subscribe to your podcast recently and I've been enjoying it. Well, welcome, Howie. I'm glad that you are a recent adopter to Talking Mets. You want to do me a big favor? Tell some friends that aren't adopters of Talking Mets. Let's get them on board. The more, the merrier. The community, we want this to grow and be as inclusive and as fun and as much interaction as possible. Um, just listen to your most recent one about where you mentioned David Wright's Hall of Fame chances. Here's my question. Remember Kirby Puckett. His MLB career also ended early because of injury. If you look at both of their career stats, besides hits and average, they aren't too far off. 
B War is also very close. So can a case be made if Kirby Puckett is in the Hall of Fame due to the early retirement, then Wright and Mattingly have a chance. So Howie, you are a thousand percent correct. And I think I talked a little bit about this on the Hall of Fame show, that precedent plays into it. If we were in the court of law, man, the Hall of Very Good would be where this is going because precedent has been made for, you know, guys that had maybe very short, you know, uh, shorter bursts of success. I think like Catfish Hunter is one guy. And that opens up guys like Andy Pettit and whatnot that could be considered a little bit. Um, I certainly think Kirby Puckett, when you look at the elite center fielders, uh, he has less of a case than uh, you know a guy like Andrew Jones or Kenny Lofton that I don't believe belong in the Hall of Fame. I know he had a really good nine-year run. I think Puckett gets helped by having that moment in the postseason, the walk-off home runs, some of the big catches in the postseason. Being on the national stage with the Twins over a five-year period, winning a couple of World Series, being in a classic World Series helps him a lot. I mean, 91 World Series is a classic. You don't have to be a, a Twins or a Braves fan to remember that series. I remember watching it as a kid, and that was a classic series. I remember watching the Kirby Puckett walk-off home run off Charlie Liebrandt. What was it? Jack Buck says, see you on Sunday or something like that. Something to that you know, effect. So I, I don't know if Kirby Puckett meets my muster for the Hall of Fame. I do think your argument on Wright and Mattingly is appropriate. I think because Wright didn't have that moment like Puckett, because Wright's uh, best probably was a little shy of Puckett's in a lot of ways with the counting stats. Um, I think we all love David Wright as Mets fans. And I know that we've kind of probably tired the Hall of Fame talk, so I'll wrap this up quick. But I thought it was a good question by Howie and Fleshy. And he's a new listener, so he deserves to get his due. Anybody new to the party should get a chance to be part of the party. Uh, we don't play favorites here. You know, uh, time and job is not something that we uh, discriminate towards or, or, or uh, what have you on this show. Um, so I think if we go down the route, like you say, with precedent being a big part, it is a fair comment. It is a fair way of looking at your ballot. It is certainly something that if it happened, you could make an intelligent argument. But I think we're going down the route of the Hall of Very Good. And I think the Hall of Very Good is not what the Hall of Fame is about. I know it's a museum, and I know what's the big deal. It's a museum. David Wright belongs in the Mets Hall of Fame. David Wright belongs uh, as a retired number in Mets history. He's a subset of baseball, not a luminary within baseball. Now, if he had stayed healthy, maybe the conversation is different, and he'd be right up there with Chipper Jones and Scott Rowland. And I think a lot of people say, well, Scott Rowland is Hall of Very Good. He's not. You know, all you have to do is go to Baseball Reference. It's free. And, uh, you know, click on, as you scroll to the bottom of each player, the, uh, the, the Hall of Fame index and the leaders at a position. And you can see who the best of the best in their Hall of Fame status and where a particular player stands and where the average Hall of Famer stands in the context of a lot of it is war, which takes all the offense and defense and combines it together. It's one of the more fair ways of evaluating the Hall of Fame. I don't evaluate building teams on it, but it does tell you who ranks where. And, um, you know, I, I think it tells you all you need to know about why someone who's in the Hall of Fame, maybe when you look at them a second time, is not necessarily as deserving, and why someone who's on the outside looking in is on the outside looking in. So... Howie, thank you for the comment. Thank you for giving us a cherry on top of our 2022 Hall of Fame talk. I think that'll do Hall of Fame for a while. Maybe we'll rekindle it in July when they have the ceremonies up in Cooperstown and what have you. Uh, As I said earlier in the program, as we wrap up here, Carlos Beltran 
gets a job in the Mets front office working for Billy Epler. And it is interesting how Beltran has come full circle. And I hope he getting a job in baseball in a front office after the sign-stealing thing. And we'll be doing a segment with Evan Drylick, uh, formerly a Mets blog, by the way. He has a book coming out in a couple of weeks where we'll talk a little bit more about the reporting behind the sign-stealing and whatnot. And, um, you know, I know you're kind of fatigued about that almost as much as the Hall of Fame, but it's always been fascinating to me how that thing went down, how careers were changed and lost, and how teams' trajectory, you know, the Astros' trajectory didn't really change. They wound up recovering very nicely. But, um, you know, guys like Jeff Lunhow and A.J. Hinch and the Mets, you know, and the Mets had nothing to do with sign-stealing, but they got brought in because Carlos Beltran was their manager. And it's amazing about how, you know, that, and then, of course, the pandemic happens. Who the heck knows how things would have worked out with Beltran anyway as the manager. But think about how different things could be for Buck Showalter and maybe in general if the sign-stealing thing doesn't go down and how Beltran's career as a manager uh, and how he's viewed from a Hall of Fame perspective, from a Mets perspective. So I, I wonder... You know, and I'm just thinking out loud, you know, clearly Eric Chavez, if you listen to him on the Boone podcast, has his eyes on being a manager someday. He's becoming a bench coach. He's going to be learning from one of the best in Buck Showalter. Beltran clearly at some point wanted to be a manager. He was a manager for a short period of time. Um, is this the way for the Mets as they look at Buck Showalter, they look at the fact that he's only got another year on his contract after this year. You're going to need a replacement. Are they grooming the next replacement? You have... Chavez on the bench sitting next to Buck. You've got Beltran in the front office. He'll be around Buck. He'll be around Billy Epler. I mean, this is the chance, as I continue to say, for the Mets to use a potential Hall of Fame manager. And I think if he wins a World Series before he retires, he's going to be in the Hall of Fame. I really do. I think he's that good. And I'm not just saying that. He's better than I thought, Buck Showalter. I knew he was good. And at one point in my life, I didn't think he was the kind of guy that you'd want here because of his intensity. But he has adapted and changed, and he has the right amount of intensity and the right amount of modernization to his style that, you know, he's one of the best in the game. And he deserved that that manager of the year. And it would behoove the Mets while he's here to groom different people that potentially could be his successor so that when he walks out the door, when he wants to retire, hopefully on top, not on the negative way out the door because things have gone bad, they have an appropriate replacement that can be here a while because nothing is more annoying than a rotating door of managers and start, stop, and then, uh, uh, you know, off the field or clubhouse disharmony that gets in the way of a team with talent winning. You know, I think sometimes the manager can be overrated a little bit, but I think you see with Buck how important it is to have a manager that gets everybody going in the same direction and especially somebody who is so detailed and prepared that is, if there is a team especially with the threats they have in front of them with the WBC and the team being kind of all over the place and the fact they're coming off a really good regular season with some disappointing end of the season. Is there any hangover there? And then you add the new rules, which are going to have some kind of disruption to the early part of the season at the very least. It'd be interesting to see if there's a team better prepared to handle that than Buck Showalter. Is there a better manager to have at the helm during a time like this than Buck Showalter? And what those guys like Beltran and Javis could learn. Potentially, if if Beltran wants to get back to the managing game, maybe he wants to just stay in the front office. Clearly, the broadcast booth wasn't for him. I didn't really watch him much in the broadcast booth, but I didn't see on Twitter much positive reviews. It was almost agnostic, which to me could be as bad as negative, but who knows. So anyway, I want to thank everybody for tuning in to another edition of the Talking Mets podcast. Next week is Super Bowl Sunday. I'm up in the air whether we do a show. Maybe we just take off for the Super Bowl. 
I'll let you know midweek. I'm not sure yet. I'll let you know. Um, but if we do take off, then the next show we would have would be our pitchers and catchers show as we kick off the 2023 season. We kick off 2023 spring, and we start to lay out the foundation of our journey together with the 2023 Mets, hopefully to a a, a longer postseason run than last year, hopefully as many highlights and drama, and of course stresses, because that's what makes it fun is the stresses, right? Nothing's perfect. And, um, you know, it's here. The baseball season is here. Spring isn't too far away. I know it's hard to believe that when we were negative 11 just 48 hours ago, at least by me. And uh, it should be a lot of fun. So I want to thank everybody for tuning in to this late edition of the Talking Mets podcast. I'll let you know about the schedule. Check me out on Twitter at Mike Silva Media. I'll give you an update on what's going to be going on with the next show. Of course, you can check me out all the time at thetalkingmetspodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media. And you can join Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silva at talkingmetspodcast.com. No G. Mike Silvat, TalkingMetsPodcast.com. You can also check me out on Instagram, TalkingMetsNoG. And I want to thank the good folks from the Fan Side Podcasting Network. Check them out as well. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday. If I don't talk to you, enjoy the Super Bowl. Stay tuned. I'll get the schedule out there soon. Until next time, take care, everybody. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. 96% of Grammarly users say that it helps them craft more impactful writing. Would you agree? Grammarly helped adjust my tone to navigate tough work conversations. And it works everywhere I write, so I can quickly communicate effectively. Your teammate used Grammarly to summarize an important document, making a three-pointer. How did he do it? It only took one click. 
When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. You made an incredible slam dunk to end the game. The meeting was canceled, and your team will go home champions. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done.